Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and uh, with me is not Armin Navabi. Armin Navabi couldn't <gasps> make it this week. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, for those of you listening, you're probably wondering where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have uh, the CEO of Atheist Republic, one of my favorite people, Susanna. Susanna, Aww. how are you? Good. I'm good. I'm really excited for our topic today. Yeah, so well, I thought that... I, well, partially because I'm the one who suggested it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is good. And it's actually quite relevant today, too, because, um, you know, we, we so we're, we're talking today about honor-based violence and more generally honor-based cultures and um, the role of religion in, in helping to perpetuate or maintain uh, some of these cultures. And whether it's a religious thing, whether there's a cultural thing, whether it's one or more, anyway, we're going to get into all of that. Um, and this topic is actually... Uh, it's it's become more relevant uh, this week. Recently, many of you may have heard of this uh, sort of brutal um, murder that happened in uh, Pakistan recently. Of uh, and and th th this was a little atypical. You hear about these things happening in the rural areas and villages and sort of tribal courts, uh, but th this was uh, the victim was the daughter of a high level diplomat. The former ambassador in Pakistan. So these were people from the elite class of Pakistan. And uh, her murderer was a, a, a guy who was the son of a wealthy industrialist. So this is something that happened. They're, they're generally the high socioeconomic class, high status type people. Um, and But just the way that it looked, I mean, the murder was pretty much the same as uh, any other, what you would call honor killing. This is mm -hmm. a, a man who liked this woman. Yeah, the woman rejected his proposals and his advances, and he couldn't deal with it. So he uh, got her, brought her to his house, kind of essentially imprisoned her there uh, for quite a while, uh, tortured her brutally for hours with, with like, he had apparently brass knuckles and everything with it, with himself, uh, you know, stabbings, just it, it was terrible what he did to her at the end. Um, she tried to jump off a balcony at one point and was dragged back in somehow. Right. Before she was ultimately beheaded. Right. It's horrific. It's horrific. And uh, there were security guards present uh, at the venue. His mother was there as well. Um, and his, his mother, I think, is a psychotherapist. Right. So, what? I yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you. Oh, like, this is a sort of a professional class people this is in a very upscale neighborhood in islamabad uh, the f7 sector uh so and, and th this is totally shocked everybody because um th this man uh, is very similar to a lot of friends that i have a lot of like people I've, I've known people like this i actually i think even know somebody who knows him or knew him or was an acquaintance uh, with this guy so there's like similarity this, in terms of just uh, actions or temperament or just class? 
Um, well, class, uh, actions, temperament. I mean, the way oh, wow. the way that he okay. talked. Yeah, everything is like basically. And and that's not to say that you know every every Pakistani male is like this, but it's just interesting. What struck me about this was that um, that 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 mentality, right, is still it doesn't discriminate, as you said earlier, Susanna, before we got into this. Mm -hmm. It doesn't discriminate. It's in the So the question is, you know, is is it a cultural thing? Is it a religious thing? Is is it both? Uh, why does mm -hmm. it still exist? Uh, why do you find this more in some cultures and and not in others? Um, so I, I wanted to actually, I wanted to get your reaction because I know you don't know about this, but there was uh, the early 2000s um, in Buffalo where I was living in Buffalo, New York at the time, you know, I was doing my residency there and there was a new TV channel that they launched like a national sort of cable channel in the US called Bridges TV. And this was after 9-11, right? And it was uh, launched by, let me, let me see. Yeah, and then eventually they moved to New York City in, in July 2011. July 2011, that's much later. But the guy's name was, the founder, the CEO, his name was Muzammil Hassan, right? And he thought that uh, after 9-11, uh, Muslims were being stereotyped. So they said, you know, moderate Muslims should not be able to identify, they shouldn't be identified with these extreme stereotypes. This is a quote uh, that he said, he said uh, that moderate Muslims cannot identify with the extreme stereotypes often depicted in Hollywood productions and said that uh, they think they're not accurately, accurately portrayed and Bridges TV is here to give American Muslims a voice that will depict them in everyday real life situations. And okay. he wanted to use this, uh, launch this channel to balance negative portrayals of Muslims following 9-11. So uh, my younger brother was a musician. This is the first time I heard of it. He came to Buffalo to visit me and uh, he was invited to perform. So, you know, they had music. I'd like, this was a, a Muslim a, a thing for Muslims, not necessarily Islamic, but for American Muslims. So he performed songs on it, you know, he was there. Okay, so <laughs> a little while later, I, don't know, I should be laughing, this isn't funny. I think it's 2009, al um, Hassan, the CEO gets arrested. Right? So this channel that he started to um, kind of counter the negative stereotypes of Muslims being violent and, you know, terrorists and all that stuff. Uh, he was arrested and charged with killing, beheading his wife. Oh my God. He was separated from his wife. Her name was Asiya Zubair. She also worked with him at Bridges TV. Like they, mm -hmm. together they founded it. And um, at the station, it was right there uh, at the, the Bridges TV uh, station, that venue where they worked, uh, they found her body, her decapitated body. Okay. Right? So, yeah, th so this is like, it's just extremely ironic. Um, Out of curiosity, was um, he born and raised in the States or was he an immigrant to America? Oh, that I don't know. I can... It's I, not I'll, entirely I'll, relevant, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it is an interesting... It's always an interesting question. Uh -huh. uh, but, um, but he was... You know, so this was a huge issue. I mean, this, this guy totally lost mm -hmm. it. Uh, same thing, you know, the woman he was with, his, his wife was leaving him um, and he couldn't deal with it. So he went and he beheaded her, and killed her right at the TV station at the office that they had founded to counter these stereotypes of American Muslims or of Muslims overall. Right, and it, and so it, it's just bizarre the whole situation. So it's extremely, mm -hmm. you know, it became a big deal then. 
And, uh, you know, this, this highlights the issue of, I mean, honor killings are complete, they're directly related to domestic violence. Um, uh, and, you know, they made the case that Islam does not, con uh, uh, does not support, does not condone this kind of honor killing, which, which is true, it doesn't. Um, but when it comes to domestic violence, you know, that's a question. They're also saying that Islam does not condone domestic violence, but that, yeah. as we're going to get into it later, is not true. That's not true. <laughs> we're, we're, we're skeptical. Yeah, we are skeptical. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, so I have, your, I have the answer to your question. Was Abul Hassan, he came to the U.S. from Pakistan at age 17. Mm. Right? So yeah, the, the reason I think that it's important to highlight both of these cases is because this is, you know, one is a sort of elite, um, educated, you know, the higher socioeconomic class Pakistani family in Islamabad, right? These are, that's the murder that happened. And the other is uh, an American Muslim family, right? The, the entrepreneurs who are living in, in Buffalo, New York. So this is, uh, and, and the story is always the same. It's the same as all the other honor killings that you see everywhere else. And the, if, if you have this kind of thing happening, in these higher sort of strata of society, then what hope do people have, um, you know, who, who are not as privileged, like the less privileged people, where, I mean, all, there are thousands and thousands of other killings that happen every year that completely go um, unnoticed. So, mm -hmm. and this isn't just a Pakistan thing. It's not just an Islam thing. Uh, this is also uh, in neighboring India. India has a huge, um, Mm -hmm. a, a sort of a crisis when it comes to violence against women, you know, rape, sexual assault. Uh, there have been many, many headlines out of India that happened. And, and yeah, go ahead. Well, um, just for our audience, I think um, I should give the, um, uh, not, not exactly a warning, but just kind of like preface that I think a lot of this conversation is probably going to focus around Pakistan or just the, like Desi region, um, because that is where, you know, Ali has a lot of background and knowledge. And also the killing of Noor is um, particularly uh, kind of the launching pad for this discussion, right? Um, so we're kind of looking at it through that um, as, a, as a touching touchstone. But um, this, is a, this is an issue that is global. Um, it's uh, again, it's not exclusive to Islam. It's a huge problem in India. And um, honor-based violence isn't exclusive to women. Um, I think of, I think his name was Ali Reza in Iran, a young homosexual man who was right. um, honor-killed by his family when they discovered that he was gay. Um, or I think of even... Um, uh, men who are the victims of um, intercaste violence who are killed because of dating women outside of their caste. Now, that might have a little bit more of a retribution angle to it um, than uh, honor from one's own family, although sometimes it is. Um, but it all falls within the same um, territory of... Um, uh, collectivist violence basically um and i think it's it's a very um tricky thing to try to untangle especially 
delicately when talking about people's different cultural backgrounds, because I was trying to look up some statistics on this to get a better perspective. And um, I found a site called Honor-Based Violence Awareness Network, and they had some statistics and data. Um, however, on their website, I don't know how up to date this is, so I'm taking this with a grain of salt. But they say, um, again, I don't know how um, the recency of this, but they say that there are roughly 5,000 honor killings internationally per year. That's definitely underreported. It's just a fact that that's underreported. Right. Um, 1,000 of those are said to have occurred in India. Another 1,000 are said to have occurred in Pakistan. And then the only other st statistic that they give is that 12 occur in the UK. So... Again, I don't know how accurate or recent that these numbers are, but like almost half of honor-based violence that is reported and recorded is in a very specific region of the world. Um, so we have to acknowledge that. Um, and um, based on the people, you know, in my capacity at Athe Atheist Republic who talk to me who asked me for help you notice patterns right so it's it's it, almost exclusively from the middle east north african region and um the desi region. south asia yeah, yeah. south asia the desi region so there's a um there's a, there's a couple of things one thing I'll, I'll say is you know when you talked about the retribution aspect where they actually killed um the guy who was dating the girl they're both connected you know usually if there is a woman who brought shame to the family and and uh, insulted the honor of the family by having an affair with somebody she wasn't supposed to of a lower caste or different religion, different sect, uh, different uh, class, um, then or just having an affair in general, because I mean that's <laughs> that's it, that itself is taboo. Any relationship outside of marriage. Any yeah. relationship outside of marriage. So if they do that, they're usually kind of an arranged marriage specifically. Yeah, there's if there's a the whoever the man is that's involved or the partner, um, the retribution goes hand in hand because you know you, they usually happen simultaneously. They happen together. Um, so. Yeah, and the other thing is, there's you know you're talking about these statistics, and I agree with you. They're they're very very underreported. You know, most of these cases just kind of go under the radar. They're just taken care of by a tribal elders in, in rural areas and so on. And they have their own sort of tribal courts, you know, often that are have no oversight whatsoever. Um, and they will they'll actually prescribe punishments at at, at times, like if um, someone if there's a man and he has an affair with uh, one family, the daughter of one family, and they're not happy with that, then the courts, these tribal courts, will actually say that this guy's sister should be allowed to be gang raped, for instance, by the family. They'll actually yeah. prescribe things like that. And that the that, Taliban is notorious for that, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, should, I should say that, has, that actually has no basis in the Islamic religion. Like, we have to be clear about that. We don't want to say... Like, is it related to certain elements of, you know, religious patriarchy? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a whole different topic. But that's obviously, that's not something that's sanctioned um, in, in Islam or I think in, in any religion, like the prescription of gang rape, for instance. But um, these things, they do happen. That's part of the culture. And many times it, it doesn't even have to be an honor killing. They don't necessarily do the honor killing. You know, they have, like, for example, a prescribed, that kind of thing. You've heard of the... Um, 
when a lot of these men, you know, they don't necessarily kill the woman, but they'll get somebody to throw acid in her face and that'll disfigure her for life. And we've heard those kinds of stories as well. It happens a lot in Afghanistan, happens in Pakistan. I think recently there was even a case in New York City. And obviously the people, the, the guy who did it was from the Desi region, right? So, um, yeah, this is this pattern, like there is a pattern that happens exclusively in these areas. Well, you know, before we really dig into this much further, I think we should, you know, set a foundation of just like giving a definition. So I'm just going to read the definition of honor killing off of Wikipedia so that our audience like understands kind of where we're drawing our boundaries, you know, around right. this conversation. So honor killing is the murder of an individual. So again, not sex specific, either an outsider or a member of the family by someone seeking to protect what they see as the dignity and honor of their family. Uh, religion is often a motive and those killed will often be more liberal than the murderer rather than being generally quote unquote dishonorable. So um, that's a very broad definition. Um, obviously there is a lot of violence against women throughout the world. Um, and uh, for example, there's a report from the UN in 2018 that says that there are 50,000 women a year that are killed by their intimate partners or family members. Mm -hmm. So um, that's kind of the broader circle. And then honor-based violence is more of a um, violence that comes from a specific motive within, you know, that larger perspective of um, intimate partner violence. Um, and uh, it's honestly such a hard topic to talk about for obvious reasons. And um, I wanted to, you know, kind of for my own understanding, get your perspective as someone who is from Desi culture, grew up in Pakistan, spent what, like 12, 13 years of your life in Saudi Arabia, like on living in a culture that involves a value towards this very kind of diffuse concept of honor because i'm from america i've spent my entire life on the west coast of the united states like it by most um scales of you know collectivist versus independent um the societal orientations like america i think is the most like hyper individualistic culture in the world so for me it's honestly hard to understand this impetus towards honor because i think growing up in a religious family like i did like there is inherently a sense of some collective identity when you grow up in a religious community your family wants the community that you're in to see that you are being good at following religious tenets right but it's nowhere near the level of what we see in other parts of the world and um i I have a hard time even understanding how to approach the topic sometimes because it's so outside of my purview of understanding a, a relationship amongst people and you're in from the individual to society, like the micro macro, et cetera. So um, yeah. I'd really like to hear what it's like being amongst that. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I think that's a fantastic question because I, I completely understand like there's a and i i don't want to this isn't I, I don't want to get be culturally relativistic here but um you know in the places i grew up people did not understand that hyper individualism you know they didn't understand why there's so much depression in the u.s like these people they're rich you know they have all this money they've got 
you know, all these celebrities are doing drugs and killing themselves. You know, why, why is this happening? What, what do they have all the school shootings, disturbed sort of mental health issues? Um, and that's something that they have trouble understanding. But there's a, um, there's a, a sort of an anthropological, sociological uh, spectrum, well, concept of the spectrum of cultures. We're going to talk about guilt cultures, shame cultures, and fear cultures, right? So uh, people, so if you have a guilt society, and that's what called, like the, the United States, a hyper-individualistic culture would be, for example, a guilt culture, right? And these um, guilt cultures, you, it's, it, guilt is a more individual thing. You know, you do something wrong, you feel bad about it, okay? And it doesn't mean, it, it doesn't matter if, anybody else knows about it, whether you've been caught or not. It's like, you know, you see in those movies, you know, do something terrible and the guilt eats you up for the rest of your life. Um, so the U S is an example of a guilt society. And, and so, um, people, uh, from guilt cultures will say something like, you know, is what I did, is this fair? Is it unfair? Is it just, was it the right thing to do for me? I mean, that's, they'll, they'll ask themselves those questions. Now in a shame culture, Shame is more sort of publicly uh, oriented, right? So it's shame is about you don't want to be shamed in front of people. You know, like Cersei in Game of Thrones walking down the, saying shame, shame, shame uh, to her. So the, the, the question here is it's about getting caught, getting exposed, doing something really bad, and then being shamed for it, right? So if uh, in a shame culture, uh, people before when they engage in these behaviors, they, might, they may say, um, how will it look? If I do this, how will people perceive it? What are people going to think? You know, this is something you hear people joke about and complain about in Desi culture. It's like, you know, all the aunties like, you know, what are people going to think? What are the neighbors going to think? You know, that, so that is a very, very integral part um, element of uh, shame-based culture. So uh, places like honor, honor cultures are, and shame cultures are essentially synonymous. I mean, that's how it works. The whole I think um, a very key distinction, and while you were talking about cultures, this is more, um, what I'm about to say is more specific to um, a definition that's more appropriate towards the individual, but it's I think it's good for people to think about. So mm -hmm. the difference between shame and guilt is that guilt is oriented towards an action, meaning like think about a, a kid eating a cookie when they shouldn't have, their parents told them not to. The a guilt reaction would be the kid would say like, I did a bad thing. So guilt is attributed to an action versus shame is attributed to the character of that individual. Right. So it's like, I ate a cookie when I wasn't supposed to, I am bad Yeah. versus I, I did a bad thing. So it's, it's a very important and vast distinction between the level of like responsibility that you put towards um, an individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so and, and there are those aspects to it. I think there, there are entire descriptions of the features of a guilt society, a shame society. And the third society that I was talking about the third is, is a fear culture. And in that, it's basically, you know, if I do this, uh, what is the government going to do to me? What's a mob going to do to me? You know, what's going to be my punishment if I do that? So that's, that's a fear culture. So those are just very generally, and I think all societies have elements of all three, obviously, but... Um, there are some that are more centered around one or the other um, concept or, or type, type of culture. So it has a lot to do with like the, the shame culture, the societal aspect uh, is, is a huge part of those kinds of societies, you know, the places where I grew up. Um, and, you know, the, 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 it is really hard to understand 
uh, where the other's coming from. You know, whether you're here looking over there, whether you're there looking here, um, it, it feels really, really alien sometimes. Did, yeah. um, well, and I want to move into the how um, responsible Islam is for this type of um, behavior in a second, but just to kind of put a bow on um, the experience of honor culture, like, you probably had that mindset at what time in your life? The honor thing? Yeah. I mean, what do you think? I, I, I might have sort of subconsciously. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think I'd, I'd probably be, I never consciously had that. I mean, my, like in, in the case of my parents, I mean, in my family, uh, the women were generally very well educated. Like my, my mother has a doctor, she's a PhD. Yeah. My, my sister is a physician. She's, you know, a specialist uh, in rheumatology. There's, and so every, I, I, I grew up in a sort of very, well, I grew up in the same kind of, I guess, privileged class that these Nanur and Zahir Jaffer, Jaffer grew up in. Uh, but yeah, I, I never had those kinds of, um, yeah, I, I was always told that those things are wrong. The well, in terms I, of the violence, but in terms of shame, I think you're right. I think when it comes to uh, what people are going to think and how you look to others and how you're supposed to behave, uh, especially with the women in the family or the girls in the family, and how that has to be different from the guys. I think that that mm-hmm. there, there were elements of that even even with me growing up. Yeah, I, I shouldn't um, put so much of it onto you, right? Because I'm not trying to make this a judgment. I'm just trying to get perspective. Um, what I mean is like you, not even you, um, you were surrounded by it and that attitude, you probably saw it in your classmates more. But um, it's probably not too much of an assumption to say that women are much more of a subject of this culture than men. Yes, they are. And, and I, I will, I, I mean, the reason that you're asking, I'm not, I'm not uh, insulted or anything like that. I actually, I'm, I'm thinking about this right now aloud as, as you guys can all hear mm-hmm. um, is that, yeah, I think I did when I was younger, I grew up, um, thinking that yeah they they had different roles and responsibilities so i think we grew up in the like late 70s 80s you know um around that time that's what i yeah, that that is the way that i was kind of raised and i was raised to think even though i came from a relatively privileged um mm-hmm. family uh that you know they, they had different roles at that time though i think it was just um it wasn't just because i was daisy that that was kind of the view in a lot of places, even even here, you know, people had of course people care about what people think. I mean, we're social animals, yeah. but it's like to what extent is this like a very active consideration? Or, yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, we were it, very conscious yeah. of it, and it was very very it was a very active consideration immediately around the society uh, where I grew up. So in Saudi Arabia, obviously, all the women had to go out wearing these black cloaks called abayas, right? And there was a time when. And my mother was, uh, this is at a supermarket, I think I've told this story before, and, you know, her head cover slipped a little bit, you could see her hair, and this uh, religious police guy came and with a stick, he wanted to hit her on the head with it. Oh, so, Jesus. yeah, and so, so these kinds of things, you know, we saw growing up on, on a daily basis. I mean, the fact that she couldn't drive, 
Mm-hmm. She had yeah, to. It's extremely informative and in, to you as a young child. Um, yeah, you, you grow up and you normalize these things. So that that definitely has an effect on how you're going to uh, treat people when when you grow up, or, or the the kind of I guess you you do absorb some of it, you do internalize some of it. And I I noticed this when I had like for the first time I dated somebody, the first relationship I was in. There was a lot of things I was challenged on. Um, by my first girlfriend, who was, by the way, really like I think it was one of my the biggest influences in my life in terms of getting me to think differently. And yeah, I had certain preconceptions that I had to really reassess and reevaluate and evolve out of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- those elements definitely were there. So I think now we should turn to um, how much we can blame Islam for this. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, in my observation, I mean, I haven't really, I've, I've never um, like debated a Dawah guy or, a, you know, Islamic speaker or debater before. So it's not personal experience, but just watching other people do it. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of saying that this is Islamic, that this is directly attributed to Islam. And then when you're asked to you know show the receipts you can't mm. in specific cases um and so the question comes down to like what in scripture specifically and directly allows this and this can be the quran this can be hadith or just you know a scholarly understanding right and then um to what extent is it quote unquote islamic culture you know because i mean there's uh for example uh, Christmas isn't in the Bible, right? Yeah. But it's Christian culture. So um, tr- making that distinction is very important um, for um, anyone who likes to think about Islam, especially criticism of it, to really understand and be able to draw those boundaries very sharply. So you have more of a background into the actual scripture mm. um, than I do. So if you, I think we should dive into what, is actually present there yeah so let me sort of um uh set up the stage for that conversation uh by uh talking about this just in in terms of this killing that happened with nur makadam um at the same month that this i mean this month essentially um the pakistani parliament had a bill in front of them they had legislation uh that was proposing that women should be protected from violence in the home it's pretty straightforward domestic violence. It's anti-domestic violence legislation in Pakistan. The Pakistani parliament is being faced with this. Should we pass legislation saying that women should not be subject to violence in the home, including by their husbands, right? Especially by their husbands. And the parliament voted no on this. So they rejected it. Uh, and they decided to... Uh, they decided to essentially outsource it to what they have. They have this Islamic ideology council, right? And the, the, this Islamic ideology council based on a Quran the Quran and Islamic scripture had, had previously said that it was permissible for a husband to beat his wife, you know, based on Surah 4 verse 34. And we're, we're going to get into the details on that as well. So with the parliament essentially outsourced it to them and, and they decided to rule on this. So this is the status of you know how uh, the so the word elite literally means like elected 
So this is this is the elected class. This is a Pakistani parliament. This is the way they're thinking. Um, we know recently about Imran Khan, the Prime Minister Imran Khan's comments about how you know if women are going to dress a certain way. I mean, he did this interview with Axios uh, with Jonathan Swan, who's you know brilliant. Oh no, I think that was a yeah. I think it was that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can't remember whether it was that yep. interview with where he talks about Purda. Yeah, and and he said you know if women if they if if they provoke men, you know, this is this kind of thing is going to happen. So he's kind of doing the, it's it's the age old classic slut shaming, just slut -shaming. you know, different language, different name. You are responsible for the uh, the violence that men inflict on you based on what you're wearing, and if you're wearing whatever is this diffuse idea of what is and is not okay, like then you deserve it basically, and that you're asking for it. Mm -hmm. And um, that it's to be expected, which actually belies an incredibly low opinion of men. Right. That's a, that's a problem. It's actually quite insulting to men in general. Um, so there's a so th this is an this is an issue. This is the way that the Pakistani government, the Pakistani prime minister, who, by the way, is supposed to be uh, uh, supposed to be progressive. Right. He's a Western educated guy, international. Married for the third time. Married for the third time. His first wife was Jemima Goldsmith. He's a British woman. Uh, and his uh, he also had, I think, affairs with Goldie Hawn and a lot of I mean, he was really, really out there. Uh, for the first half of his life, and then you know we came back to Pakistan. Suddenly, became religious very conveniently later in his life. At that point, at that point, he had women in his life that he actually wanted to control. That's speculation, but I, I think I'm pretty spot on with that. So, uh, this is the attitude towards domestic violence. So now, if you look at domestic violence stats in in Pakistan, there was a 200 percent increase in domestic violence between January and March 2020. Okay, so this is from Within Human Rights Watch. Three months. Yeah, there was a. a it says that's what it says, it says between January and March. I don't know if they. I think they looked at all domestic violence incidents in between January and March, and they saw there was a two hundred percent increase from in domestic violence from before that period. And then that was before everyone went into lockdown. And across right. the world, we've seen just an explosion when people have gone had to go into lockdown because there's just way tighter control you can't get away from mm -hmm. people who abuse you really and, yeah you, you can't and, and <clears throat> domestic violence child abuse these things they exploded during the lockdown right because people frustrated that at home and, and you know they're stuck they can't really do anything as you're saying and in pakistan those stats actually increased even further so 200 percent increase between january and march was actually these were the domestic violence stats um prior to the pandemic right so this is this has been an issue and then you know now you have uh you know this domestic violence legislation that's being shut down and being outsourced to islamic ideology councils so th this is one of the problems with the religious aspect susanna right is that in a secular society you can have activist groups coming and saying this is wrong you shouldn't hit women you know, women have rights. They have all the, all of your stuff, you, common sense stuff that we all know now. You can say these things. Mm -hmm. I wish we all knew that. <laughs> and then you have uh, you have courts, and and you can make these arguments, and you, you don't really run up into any kind of barriers. Now, in Pakistan or in Saudi Arabia, if you try to make this argument, you know, the husband beats his wife. She comes in. Uh, she's like, you know, he, she, he beat me, and he's like, well, yeah, she was disobeying me. Right. And then her lawyers say, well, it's wrong to beat women. You know, women have just the same rights that men do. And then someone comes in they're like, well, we're an Islamic country. 
Here's Surah 4, verse 34 from the Quran. It says that you're yeah. not to beat yeah. your wife. And now yeah. you've hit a barrier. Okay. Yeah, because, because they'll say, by what authority? My authority comes right. from the one above. Your yeah. authority is these international conventions that have the basis in these infidel countries. <laughs> So Whoa, then it's totally it, uneven. It is. It's very uneven. And then what do you do? What do you do at that point? Do you go and start challenging the scripture? Right. And this is the same thing with, for instance, uh, older men who marry girls, girls, like, you know, someone in their the guy in his late forties getting married to an eight year old. I mean, this was a case that happened in Saudi Arabia and the judge would not grant her a divorce. The Saudi Arabia's higher judicial council. This is a case that happened many years ago. And the argument was that, uh, well, you know, the prophet Muhammad, you know, when he was 53, he had a nine-year-old wife, Aisha. So based on that, this is Sunnah, this is permissible. Like there's a verse in the Quran, Surah 65, verse four, that actually has instructions on how to divorce a wife who hasn't menstruated yet, right? So someone who is prepubescent, if you're married to how to divorce. I mean, these things are sanctioned um, by the Quran and the Hadith. So what do you do? And then Quran and the Sunnah. So what do you, what do you do? I mean, you, do you challenge them? If you challenge them, then there's another problem you're facing. You're a lawyer. You're challenge, challenging this whole thing with domestic violence. They accuse you of blasphemy. You're going yeah, against your lawyer might get assassinated. That's what happens. Yeah. And what do we know about blasphemy laws in Pakistan? Uh, you will. It's very likely you may die before you even get to the police office. Right. Right. So there's a. Um, so, so this is a child. This, this is a problem. I mean, you, people will say a lot of these aspects of these this honor culture, they're cultural. They're not religious. And the thing is, they're they're rooted in a system, in a religion, a, a religious based system, that essentially puts them in a time warp. These actions puts them in a time warp and freezes them. It cements them in that time so that you can't evolve beyond it. You have these sort of blasphemic barriers that you can't go up against and you can't move beyond. Right. And th this is, and that's where the religious aspect comes in. Uh, and this, you know, you can see in, in, if you go back, you know, a couple of centuries in, in Europe and Christian Europe, at the time it's very similar things, right. The, the violence a, against women and everything. I'm very glad you brought that up because I yeah. get very, um, and I mean, I understand where people are coming from. There's a lot of people who talk about Christianity being this softer religion when what they're really trying to get at is behavior of Christians is softer than what they see in other groups. Whereas right. if you look into the text of the Bible or even, you know, maybe like the catechism of the Catholic Church um, uh, or original renditions of it, um, you see a lot of the same attitudes towards women so we should be attributing that um uh, difference in behavior to um the change in values of christians um that as opposed to their actual scripture and ideology being better yeah. um because I mean, I mean, it's not actually you, oh sorry go ahead i mean you see the same thing in like ultra orthodox jewish communities the the just the the ways that women are treating treated is horrific. Um, it, it might not be uh, death, right? But it still belies um, a uh, possession towards um, the female sex. So the broader point that I wanted to get to was that when, in terms of attributing thing to Islam, 
like let's just take Islam. In terms of attributing things to Islam specifically, you have to be very exact. So like you can say that it is Islamic to it's, it's actually mandated or suggested by God to be your wife. But even then you have to be clear that if you're going to be accurate, it is under specific conditions, right? Mm. And you can easily correctly say that if a father murders one of his children, he gets a lessened sentence for the murder of his daughters. Right. Mm -hmm. So that belies a specific attitude. Um, when I'm making arguments about the extent to which um, Islam is directly responsible for the continuation and perpetuation of this type of culture, I instead try to focus on the ways in which um, the scripture validates an attitude of a, of a complete possession of women. Because when I think about honor-based culture and just the ways that people talk about this, and I mean, this includes Hindu societies as well. Um, it, it can, it, in my mind, it can really be encapsulated just by talking about like, you think that you can possess women, that this is your property and that you have to defend it in some way. So um, this is why there's so much violence in India uh, regarding um, love jihad or um, interfaith um, marriages, um, mm -hmm. because, uh, well, specifically these far-right Hindu groups think of these women as their possessions and that these Muslim men are taking them away from them. They're robbing them. And then therefore taking the children that were ruled likely result from that marriage away from their community and and weakening their community by this like very sinister kind of conspiracy of like demographic engineering like yeah, it's like this um, religious poaching operation you know where they're taking people yeah there was this incident that happened very recently and i um saw d in the live chat talking about this where there was a 17 year old girl earlier in july who um, 17, she was murdered by her family for wearing jeans during a Hindu ritual. And they had admonished her many times about wearing these jeans. And she would just say, jeans are meant to be worn. And um, they rendered her unconscious from beating her with lathis. And then when they were supposedly supposed to take her to a hospital, instead the next day her body was found hanging from a bridge um, yeah. for wearing jeans. You yeah. know, and for wearing Western clothes. So to me, that just gets at this attitude of like, you are progressing away from our collective identity. We have to reel you back in at all costs because it, what you do um, by association reflects back on us. And we have to prove to the people around us that we are committed to this in-group, very firm identity even if that goes to the extent of taking out our own family members. Mm -hmm. um, and so just again, going back to how much we can attribute this to um, religion directly, I fall back on the aspects that emphasize a possession over women and Quran 434, like literally begins with talking about men having possession over women, something yeah. along the lines of like Allah gives men to those that which they are supposed to protect. Yeah. And so I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll read that out and I'll talk about like the, 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 the you know, how people try to defend it. And I'm, I'm going to counter that as well. I think we'll, we'll do that in a few minutes, but I wanted to say like, you know, one of the reasons that we titled this 
to what extent is religion responsible and not, not just Islam is because um, all religions, all of them are misogynistic. Okay, they look at women as second-class citizens. This includes Buddhism, right? If you go with so canonical Buddhism, you know, they're, they're obviously very different. There are many different versions of Buddhism, you know, but, but anyway, even if you look at that, uh, you look, look at Hinduism, you look at Hindu society, uh, whether it's now, right, or you, or you look at texts like the Manu Samrithi, um, you have the Quran, obviously, you know, it's full of all kinds of double standards against women. Women are clearly thought of as a possession, as secondary to men. You look at uh, the Bible, you know, you talked about the Hasidic Jews, like they, they basically take uh, the, the Old Testament very, very literally. They take it extremely seriously. The New Testament too, you know, in Christianity, uh, women are supposed to be quiet. They're supposed to think of their husbands as their masters. They're supposed to stay silent. They're supposed to be subdued. They're supposed to cover their hair. I mean, that's all in the New Testament as well. Uh, and the, the point that I was trying to make when I was talking about Christian Europe, you know, it isn't that uh, not making comparison between Christians and, and Muslims today, uh, but at the time, right, that honor culture was, I mean, Christian Europe was essentially an honor culture as well. And it wasn't the way that these the Christians changed is because of, there was a Protestantization, there was an, an enlightenment process, and then there was the secularization process, right? These things happened, and so I think you're frozen. Are you there? Can you hear me? Okay. Let me let me know if you guys can still hear. But anyway, so there was a and, and they moved from that phase, uh, and they secularized. They separated religion from state, as is what happened in the United States and then happened in uh, basically the rest of uh, these, a lot of the Western societies that we have now are largely secular. And, and that's what ultimately countered it, right? But the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things that is, yeah. Okay, thank you, music guy, I'm still on. So we'll just wait for her to come back. Um, one of the uh, biggest sort of central things in all of them, this is why I say all religion, and this is a huge thing in Christianity and in Islam, is the story of the Virgin Mary. You know, the story of the Virgin Mary. Uh, this is the sort of uh, the prototype for honor culture or for just honor-based thinking everywhere. So if you think of Mary, Mary is a virgin, that's a virtue, okay? So she is, she's never been touched by any man and so she's innocent, she's chaste, her own conception was an immaculate conception. Uh, she is uh, uh, pure, uh, she's, you know, just not, not touched in any way, it's completely innocent. And then she gives birth to the Son of God, right? And what's important about this is essentially her birth canal, as Christopher Hitchens said, is her birth canal is basically a one-way street. Right. God forbid any any man comes comes near her, right? because apparently that would sully her in some way. It would pollute her, or taint her. So this purity and the purity of virginity and the virtue of virginity, um, and you know, of a woman being untouched is sort of exemplified in the story of the Virgin Mary, because apparently all of her honor, right, honor, all of her virtue is somehow between her legs. Right. And this is a, this is, a, hey, Susanna, you're back. Sorry about yeah. that. My computer crashed. Yeah. So I was, I was talking just about the Virgin Mary and how that concept is central to Christianity, obviously, but it's also a very big concept in Islam too. The fact that she was a virgin 
and that's why um, she was uh, so she was considered innocent in Chase. And then now, now when we talk about virginity, we talk about losing virginity, right? Even even though it's not something you lose, you, you basically gain a new part of your life that's not so bad. That's actually quite a good part of your life. So you're not exactly yeah. Yeah, you're not exactly losing anything uh, when when we have uh, when we talk about deflowering, right? That's the same thing. You know, you're violating their innocence. Uh, so this concept of honor. Right, honor being sort of between a woman's legs is something that is pervasive, and it's been there um, in all of these religions. With this Hinduism, Christianity, at the fundamental level of Christianity, like with the story of Virgin Mary, uh, the Islam, obviously, uh, and uh, even you know some of these other sort of hippie religions, uh, all of them tend to have women as possessions and as second-class citizens. So. To, to move away from this, right? These previous religious societies have had to secularize. If you didn't have the Enlightenment, you know, you wouldn't have been able to move. Christians wouldn't have been able to move from that to the sort of like hippie, dilute version of Christianity that they're living in today. Thank God. Well, relative. Well, to oh, you know, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> I mean, it's relative on a relative scale. You know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on where you are. Um, Dee in the live chat was talking about the just prolific levels of violence against women in Central America, you know, which is a very um, religious region, particularly Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, although I think kind of the flavor of it being honor-based is a, it's a bit different. I don't quite get that, that same tone or inflection. Um, yeah, the possession aspect is still there. Like, yes. you know, they have to, in terms of choosing what to do with their bodies and, you know, having, prescribing what they can or cannot do with their bodies. I mean, that's, that's something that's part of it. So the possession, the patriarchal possession aspect is still. Yeah, there. you have, so, guys, if you haven't read Ali's book, you need to, okay, read The Atheist Muslim. Um, you have a great quote, which maybe you can actually give me uh, verbatim, but basically like you can't be against patriarchy and support religion it's just incompatible yeah like if you if you want to fight fight patriarchy but you're not fighting religion then you're not fighting patriarchy you're just thank not. you yeah. yeah that's that's basically um, it i guys i mean i'm not i'm not just saying this because he's right here but you should go read his book because it really um does a really good job of unpacking a lot of um specific verses and apologetics that people use to try to explain away and soften and, you know, make the Quran like niceties, you know, um, in a very easy to understand way. And I, I really, after reading your book, I felt really well equipped to um, handle those rebuttals, mm -hmm. um, especially how people try to like reinterpret the Arabic of, you know, uh, I, I don't know. It, something bahuna or something you know yeah. like the, the the actual verb for beat them and oh yeah what bahuna and we're, we're gonna get I'll, I'll actually get into that right now should i and yeah go for it so yeah this is uh basically what what Susanna was talking about what we were talking about earlier is in the quran there is this one verse that is used to justify domestic violence essentially across the board whether it's in pakistan or whether it's in saudi arabia and that's surah four which is uh you know the surah surah nisa nisa means women um, and verse 34. And this is this is the translation of it. This is how it's uh, translated by, uh, this is a Sahih international translation. Um, quote, 
Men are in charge of women by right of what Allah has given one over the other and what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. So righteous women are devoutly obedient, guarding in the husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. But those wives from whom you fear arrogance, first advise them, then if they persist, forsake them in bed, and finally strike them. But if they obey you once more, seek no means against them. Indeed, Allah is ever exalted and grand. Right. So this is, by the way, just to say that this isn't if they're arrogant or if they're disobedient. I mean, people say it's disobedience, arrogance, depending on the translation. It's not just, it's not if they are disobedient. It's if you just fear disobedience, then you're allowed to take these measures. You're supposed to advise and bondage them first. If they persist, then you essentially have them sleep in a separate room. It's like, you know, we're not going to uh, sleep together. And then uh, the finally, if they continue, if you, the fear of disobedience continues, then you're allowed to hit them. Right now, the term right is wadrubuhunna uh, or adrubuhunna in Arabic. That's a term that means beat them or strike them. Um, and the, the Marmaduke Pickthall translation translates it as scourge them. So, who translated it as beat them and strike them? Um, Yusuf Ali, M. H. Shakir, Mohsen Khan, Muhammad Sarwar, and J. Dawood. Like all of them, a, a lot of these really prominent translations. Um, and, and especially the earlier translations uh, have translated this as beat your wives, beat them. But now you have had recently all these uh, sort of new age translators. And this is all just basically in the last century or so. This has never happened before that. Um, and these people are saying, uh, like, for example, uh, there's this guy named Ahmad Shafat. He's a Pakistani Canadian guy. Uh, the Tahir al-Qadri, who's also another Pakistani-Canadian. Apparently, they're all Pakistani-Canadian people uh, who are reinterpreting uh, the scripture to mean something different. How do you feel about that as a Pakistani-Canadian? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. How do I feel Canadian. You're like, what the? Yeah. So, like, so remember, these are not people who, who know, they're not native Arabic speakers. They're not as familiar with Arabic. They've learned it. Um, they've studied it. And it's all secondhand. And so Ahmad Shafat translates it as beat or separate them from you, right? which is a little strange because that's the second step. You're supposed to separate them from you anyway. So why would you do that again? Um, and then Tahir al-Qadri, he translates as, as turn away from them, striking a temporary parting. So he's like, you're not, uh, you're not striking them. You're not striking the women. You're just striking a temporary parting. So you're, I guess initiating a temporary party. I, I don't know. So apparently, I don't even know you know, apart from Arabic, he's not very good at English either. So this is, you know, this is a question, and and a lot of these sort of new age apologist scholars like Reza Aslan, you know, they believe that um, they think it would, like why was it translated as beat them because the you know these are male dominated misogynistic interpreters uh, who who interpreted the Quran in that way. And he, he kind of blamed it. He didn't blame it on the Quran. He said the Quran is perfectly fine. It's the people who interpreted it. Those were the misogynists, right? So that, that's his approach, which clearly it doesn't make sense. So let's get into this, right? So there's a, the, the word uh, for adribuhunna, for beat them, uh, is that word adribu is derived from daraba, right? Daraba is a word that, um, that, that means well. It doesn't just mean beat. So in there's in Surah four verse one hundred one, 
uh, you have it's used in the form daraptum, which means to go forth. In Surah 3, verse 156, uh, it's darabu, which means to travel through. Uh, in that context of that verse, in verse 2, Surah 2, uh, um, verse 61, it's waduribat, which is uh, also derived from darabah. That means to be humiliated. So so it, 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 there are different contexts in which darabah, the word beat, quote unquote, literally translated as beat, it means. So that's why a lot of these new age sort of apologist scholars are saying that it doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean beat your wife. It means it could mean to move away from them, to separate from them, to humiliate them, or to go forth, um, uh, or to go forth, or as Raza Aslan says, to go forth and have intercourse with them. So that's a third tier of punishment. The third thing is that you should just go and have have sex with them, apparently, uh, which doesn't make any sense it in the context of the verse. Contradicts the verse. Yeah. So it's uh, you know they're sort of doing all of these crazy mental gymnastics, trying to trying to move away from the actual words right so you know people think a lot of this you know they say okay well it's true the the word daraba the word beat is used in different contexts and means different things depending on i mean it's a verb right so what what depending on the object that it's being applied to right but now let's look at english the english language okay so you have the word hit or strike let's look at both of them okay so you know, you can say hit, hit. You know what hit means? It means to take to, to hit somebody, right? That's, yes, if I, say I do. Hit, hit a woman. That means that you strike a woman. That's what it means. Uh, but you can say, let's hit the road. Does mm -hmm. that mean to beat the road? No. Uh, hit the lights. You know, let's hit the goal. Uh, when you hit the bottle, which is one of my favorite things to do. Okay, no, it's not. not I don't drink that much. Um, so hitting the bottle that doesn't mean you're actually grabbing a bottle and hitting it. It means that you're okay. So the, this is these are the different ways uh, in what in, in which the word hit is used, or hit me up, you know. Uh, then or hit on when you, when you say hit on a woman, that's a completely different thing from hit the woman. It's two totally opposite things. It's so, kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah. So you see what I'm getting at. I mean, this is just a verb, and it's used in all kinds of senses, and it could be colloquial senses, and some of these are more formal, right? So strike the word strike you know what do you do when you have a deal you strike a deal you can strike a balance between two, th two things you can again go up strike up a conversation with a woman you, you can say that that completely makes sense but it doesn't mean have anything to do with hitting right and uh you can go on a strike but here's the thing if i say i want to strike a balance in one part of a scripture and i say i want to you know, hit the bottle in another part of the scripture, hit the lights in another part of the scripture. And then I say, hit the woman or strike a woman, right? Just because I use the same word, like hit the woman does still mean to be a woman. It doesn't mean to strike yeah. up a conversation with a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean to hit. So, I mean, this is clearly obvious. I think everybody knows well, where I'm going with this. The moral of the story is that if you ask basically any native Arabic speaker, like which, what this means, they're like, yeah, it means punch. It means violence, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's the thing, like, you know, if you have, for example, when it says uh, in verse, in Surah 4, verse 101, when it says uh, hit the earth, right? It's a daraptum fil ardi, it means hit the earth, right? And it's, um, so and when when where it's used as humiliation, I mean the full phrase is what about uh alehemos zillatu, right? Which is I can't pronounce it very well, 
but that means that they were hit with humiliation. So yes, the, the verb that's used is daraba. It does mean hit, it does mean strike, but the context in which it's used, the direct object of uh, you know, what, what the verb is being applied to is completely different in each case. And in Surah 4, verse 34, it is women. That's the, that's the object. So you're supposed to hit women. Apparently, if you wanted to say um, you should abandon them or not hit them, you know, then I think the term would have been adrubu anhunna. It wouldn't be adrubu anhunna. That totally changes everything. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's basically, you know, the, the, the countering to a lot of these sort of hippie interpretations of the verse. And this is just one of them that we got into. Um, well, there are many other sort of misogynistic verses in the Quran. It's, you know, music guy brings up an interesting point um, where he's saying ridiculous how they try to change it, meaning a lot of kind of reformist minded scholars or translators saying it's a sin, yeah. meaning the Quran actually directly advises against um, innovation, bidda, um, trying to reinterpret, um, you know, it's a post. I'm making generalizations. There are, you know, a lot of strong schools of thought that it's like, this is what it is. And we don't have the authority to interpret. And right. people trying to make that effort, especially in the act of translation, are doing exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, mm -hmm. I th yeah, I think, yeah, we're at time. So let's, let's take a few questions. Yes. Unless you have something else to say, Suzanne? No, I was just going to make that segue too. Um, so, uh, guys, if you are listening to this after the fact or the audio, um, if you are a patron, um, link is in the description if you would like to are able to support the show. And one of the perks you get as a patron, well, one, you get to actually watch us live and see the video. But if you can't make it live, because you know our audience is global, honey, um, <laughs> you get to ask your question ahead of time. Um, so we're going to start with those questions. Yeah. So um, Dolly was asking ahead of time. She said, I don't think that Noor was murdered because of honor. She was murdered by her boyfriend, Zahir, when he tried to break up with him. And when she tried to break up with him and then he murdered her. So we kind of talked about this earlier. So I would agree with you in the sense that like there isn't any sort of um, Islamic doctrine that validates this right. But mm -hmm. I would say that it's honor in, in um, he wasn't a male family member, which is what you see in a lot of honor based violence. Is it from that woman's actual family members? I learned when I was researching this, that it's often her own, siblings because the young men will get a lesser sentence because they're juveniles um which just is yeah so messed up but um to get back to the point was yeah um her murder was not her relation had no blood relation to her but i would still consider it honor-based violence because it has to do with uh, a feeling of possession over woman a right to possess her and also, sometimes, I mean, this is, I mean, we see this in the West where um, it's almost a man's sense of shame that he couldn't have her. It's like almost to save his own face, um, like to, to spare himself the shame of being rejected, um, I think is kind of another flavor of this kind of violence. Um, do you have any thoughts yeah. on this, Ali? No, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think that this is Dolly. Um, 
what you're saying here, the boyfriend Zahir, when he tried to break up, when she tried to break up, he killed her. I mean, that that is what happens in a lot of these honor killings. And honor, honor, honor culture is based on this idea that you have to possess women, but that you're entitled uh, to certain behaviors from women, and if you don't get them, then it's your right to do whatever you want. So um, that that sense of entitlement and possession by men is really at the heart of what honor culture is. It reminds me of um, a few months ago, um, I had it up before my computer crashed, but there was a woman who was a law student in London, and I think she was actually um, a native of Belgium, but she was visiting back home in Pakistan, and there were two men who were fighting over her hand in marriage, basically, and she rejected both of them, and while she was still in Pakistan, um, they murdered her for it, so it comes, again, down to this attitude of that was the word I was looking for an entitlement. Yes. Um, and she follows up with saying, my question is Zahir claimed he is a U.S. national and has schizophrenia. Do you think that will get him released? Um, this is a legal question that is way above my purview. Um, yeah. So I can't answer this. Um, well, I well, would hope not, but the, if, if there is um, a conflict of nationality, that is going to complicate things. Yeah, that, well, I mean, the, the U.S. national, I think the U.S., that's true. I think he is a U.S. Uh, citizen uh, from what I read, and I could be wrong. But I, I think that there was a statement from the U.S. embassy that said that they're not going to interfere. You know, if they have, if he's committed a crime in this country, he's subject to the rules of, you know, wherever he is. And the awesome. crime that he committed. So, yeah, I, I don't think that's going to get him off. The schizophrenia thing, it's, they're going to bring in experts to talk about it. Uh, I, there is a lot of pressure on them uh, to prosecute this guy. I think there's a lot of pressure even from uh, sort of elite you know, members of society in the same stratum of society that he belongs to. We're very outraged about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them have a lot of influence too. So I think he's going to have a really hard time getting away with it. Um, but, but it is true that a lot of people generally in this situation who have not received the kind of media attention, the pressure that he did, often do get away with it. They're able to leave the country, go somewhere else. They're able to pay blood money. There's a lot of sometimes what they do is a lot of these rich guys, like they'll go and they'll they'll abuse a woman who is, you know, not as rich, underprivileged. And or a religious minority in particular. Right. And, and then, in Pakistan. And when that comes up, there's a concept of blood money. And what they'll do is like, you know, if they end up killing this woman or whatever, they just pay them a whole bunch of money, which is a lot for the family, but it's not a whole lot for them like the, the mm-hmm. person who's paying it and uh, they are allowed to, then that's it. They're off scot-free. And that happens a that, lot, a lot. That's horrible. If that fact, reminds me, I was watching, um, <laughs> I've been kind of doing a deep dive into like Shia Islam and right. I was watching um, Dr. Omar uh, uh, Nakshwani and he's like kind of of the um, Shirazi Shia bent and he was talking about this very controversial subject of how do you handle these situations and he was talking about how his school of thought says that if um uh your father or husband beats you he's actually owes you money like literal blood money and it has very specific breakdowns of how much money they owe you based on the nature of the injury and they either can like pay you this back immediately or it's going to be owed to you upon their death like which was very a very new concept to me and that's um 
obviously more into the scholarly vein of their particular denomination and less of the immediate source text, primary sources, you know? Mm. Um, but that was, I like very new concept to me of like a very specific breakdown of like, they give you a black eye, like they owe you like a diamond kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so D is asking a question. What role would you give right wing quote unquote traditional family advocates in honor culture? So D I'm not sure if you're talking about in like an American Western context or like a general white right wing context, but this reminds me of something that I actually, um, wanted to touch on in this episode is what is happening in Turkey. Um, so Turkey, because of um, uh, President Erdogan's government, pulled out of something called the Istanbul Convention, which is basically an international covenant that is meant to um, not only improve, um, it's an international covenant that is meant to like kind of incentivize or um, countries to strengthen their own domestic laws that help protect women and some um, gender and sexual minorities. Um, and Turkey was the first country to sign on to this convention around like 2009 or 2011. And they actually, within the past few months, they've pulled out of the convention because Erdogan's party says that this effort to protect women is against family values. And um, they said that it is um, emancipating women in a way that is against their um, cultural standards and that it's a Western concept and that, you know, we have our own way of doing things, blah, 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 which is, there's been a huge movement protesting this in Turkey, especially considering that there has been um, an epidemic of femicides in the country, um, really severe violence against women that started the um, so-called challenge accepted movement or kind of social media campaign. And I don't know, it just really makes me think of like, how horrible i mean i just really want to go in i just really like how horrible are is your culture and your cultural standards that like a covenant to strengthen laws that protect vulnerable members of your society are seen as antithetical to your own culture and your own values it just really disgusts me yeah. <laughs> like what, what do you think about this ali what role would you give right-wing traditional family uh traditional family advocates in honor culture I, I think that there is a connection. So I like, you know, what's really interesting is like, you know, we talk about honor and culture and if you term, have you heard the term culture of honor? A culture of honor is uh, what the traditional culture of the South in the U.S. is referred to. Mm. They have purity balls and you have like, you know, you give yeah. your virginity to your dad and he holds it and he's like told, you know, you give it to your husband. The purity balls thing is actually a very recent invention, but I it, I understand what you're getting at. Yeah, no, it's it's an old concept, new manifestation. I mean, now, now it's just purity balls. Before that, it was it was a lot worse. So there is a, um, there is a, these traditional, you know, right-wing uh, advocates of family, like this idea that, you know, women uh, have to take a second class position that, you know, they are uh, sort of, they're supposed to be subservient to their husbands. Uh, the whole concept of chivalry, uh, chivalry is rooted in sexism. And, you know, there are things about it that obviously they're nice. You know, you don't, if, if you want to move Susanna, there's a lot of guys will help you carry all your stuff if they want to. And I, I don't think you'll complain too much. You're like, all right, I'll milk it while I have it. So the, you know, those aspects of it. 
it, I mean, I, I it's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> but then you're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a, and you know, some of the, all all of us have that. Like you know, I'm 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 gonna pay on the first date. You know, you know, it's it's weird not to. So there, things like that, like those those elements of chivalry are still there, but. Overall, chivalrous cultures uh, tend to be more rooted in sexism because they are, uh, you know, it, it's the job of the men to protect the women, protect the women from other men, from societal, the gaze of society, and from them becoming, say, too liberated and going out and having their own uh, sexual freedom or, or whatever it is. Uh, and it's the same thing. It's the same concept of entitlement. It's the same concept of, of possession, having some possession. And if someone acts differently than you want them to if your daughter goes rogue or something then that is an insult to your honor you have failed as a parent you'll be shamed in front of the in your community and in your, in your church so a lot, a lot of these concepts are still uh, prevalent uh, even in western society especially in the u.s because the u.s tends to be a lot more religious than most other uh, western countries yeah. secular countries so uh, yeah the, the right-wing traditional family thing you know rick santorum having like seven kids because you know, he doesn't believe in having sex with his wife unless he's going to reproduce um yeah. you know, that 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 whole thing is just uh, it, i mean it's it's right there and he was a presidential candidate yeah well i mean it's it comes from this whole concept that um seems particularly emphasized in christianity actually that's my own bias never mind but mm -hmm. it's that sex is not for you it is for expanding god's people so it's not for your own enjoyment it's for making god's people as numerous as the stars um and it yeah it's for that explicit purpose which yeah. is just which biology completely yeah. counters because then why would god invent the clitoris right the clitoris has no reproductive <laughs> function no excretion function it's the only organ in the entire human body male or female that has absolutely no function whatsoever except for sexual pleasure like the 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 the, the penis has a reproductive function and a, and a urinary function you know, the vagina also has a reproductive function, at, but the clitoris, you don't pee out of it. You don't get- You know, I was wondering it. if we were gonna be able to make it through an episode without Ali talking about genitalia, and the answer is no. <laughs> we're talking about honor-based violence. This is, what it is. this is, I mean, God created this party button, right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, so. it's the devil's button. Um, <laughs> so the Christians are completely wrong. Um, Dolly is also asking about your book saying is it free is the book free ollie and Dolly, of Amazon course and not Kindle? of course um, not. that wouldn't be fair at all but why don't you just email me it's uh if it's ali amjad rizvi at gmail.com it's on my twitter bio just email me and we'll see if we can find a place where yeah i heard that there are also some uh arabic translations of your book floating around the web is this true mm, i don't know about arabic translation yeah but uh, I don't know about Arabic ones. I know there's a Persian one, and I know there's there's an Indonesian one. I have that. Oh, cool! Um, wow. And then there, there's a uh, there's a, a an actual official Dutch version as well. Mm. So yeah, there there are a few here and there. Um, Dee is asking a question. She's saying uh, there are no scripture in Islam or Hinduism, as far as I know, that directs killing of women in honor of men. So what is the link to religion? I think we've covered this. Yeah. To um, a large extent, I'm not 
to be honest, um, extremely familiar with the actual text um, regarding like hin- Hinduism. And it's also way harder to get at with Hinduism because it's a way more heterogeneous practice that um, oftentimes isn't very directly tied to text. Um, it's it, I get the sense or what people tell me, especially who grew up in these backgrounds, that it's more just kind of based on like legends and stories and um, different values and specific ritualized practice and less like it says to do this here. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, there are a lot of legends that involve a lot of violence against women, um, usually uh, regarding uh, the preservation of chastity or proving one's chastity. Um, just look up what Lord Rama did to Sita. Um, it it's not good. Um, So there is a lot of um, honor based violence in these stories. Um, Yeah. yeah. So subservience to the husband, for instance, is a very fundamental concept in in, uh, the Hindu religion. Again, you said it's heterogeneous and many people will dispute it. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. this text, the Manusamrithi, which is just like old uh, legal text. Mm -hmm. Um, that was that's very central to Hinduism. But you, yeah. if you talk to a lot of these new age sort of Hindu type people who are apologists, they will say, "No, that has nothing to do with Hinduism. It is not. You know, Hinduism is about something completely different." And they they will say that Hinduism is just as rational as atheism, which is an idiotic proposition, obviously. But there's uh, yeah, there's you know, there are practices like sati. Like sati is a yep. practice where you know when your husband dies, then the woman, his wife. Uh, no matter how young she is, she, she has goes to on the, the funeral pyre with him. And she's burned. Yeah, she's also killed along with him. Like so, this is something that obviously very, very few people do that today. Uh, but and well, it's uh, outlawed. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think I don't think anybody does that today. I just always say very few because I'm sure there's somebody somewhere. Yeah. I'm still yeah. doing it as always. But uh, yeah. So so I think that. Um, you know, it's not necessarily, I mean, yeah, I don't think that there's no place, and we actually made it very clear in the beginning of this, that uh, honor killings, the direct act of honor killings is not something that is sanctioned by Islamic scripture or really any religion that I know of, right? That says you should kill women for honor. But Definitely. there is a um, there is a system, right? There, there's a system that's in place that's rooted in religion that allows for the perpetuation of the mindset um, that this is a direct manifestation of, right? This well, is and the- we can explicitly say that religion does, um, if you're looking at religious law, specifically Islam, um, there right. is a, a specific um, lessened sentence or punishment towards men who mm-hmm. um, kill their own daughters, you know? So, um, it's very clear when you study a lot of specific cases that um, I'm thinking specifically in Iran last summer, there was um, a month where there was like a spate of honor killings, which is more rare in Iranian society. It's very um, just speaking to Armin, he talks about, you know, how like frowned upon and just shocking that is because it's really not something that's socially condoned. Um, uh, And it's very clear when you look into some of the cases of what happened around these women that there were specific calculations that these male family members made towards the sentence that they're going to face being worth it to commit 
this act of violence, which ties into what I was saying with Turkey. Um, when I was watching um, Today to Prepare, a little mini episode talking about this Istanbul convention and the, the impact it's going to have on women in Turkey. And they profiled this one woman who was facing a severe, severe, severe threat from her husband who she was trying to divorce. And um, he, you know, just horrific threats towards her. And when Erdogan started making signaling that he was going to back out of this convention, this husband even specifically said to her, referencing this convention, like, or the removal of it, like, I'm only going to have to do three years for killing you. So I'll do it. You know, like, it is a conscious decision that many perpetrators make, a, a cost-benefit analysis, where they're like, you know, actually, what I face isn't that much of a disincentive. Like, it's so scary, and it just really emphasizes how much there need to be firm standards that can't be easily repealed to protect the most vulnerable in society. And women are, you know, just because of our physical constitution, we're just a softer target. Yeah, there's a, um, a lot of, the, like, these things are related, like an example of it is, you know, we talked about the Virgin Mary and how, you know, virginity is thought of as a virtue and it's thought of as purity and innocence and chastity. And, uh, you know, so when you have that, you know, is female genital mutilation, is that mm -hmm. something that is, you know, it's counter, that's not allowed in Christianity. It's allowed in some sects of uh, Islam. It's, you know, it, it's not, a, it's only obligatory in, in I think, the Shafi'i uh, yep. school of thought and the, the Bora, Ismaili Muslims, and, and a few other sort of communities where it is. But I mean, that, that is a direct, it's, it's, a, it's a manifestation of that whole idea, that the whole idea that, you know, women uh, are virginity supposed to be virtuous, like the sexual, the sexual side of women uh, should be completely, um, you know, it, it, it should not be prominent at all. It's only the reproductive part of it that should be highlighted you know, other things like slut shaming, for example, are also directly related to that glorification of virginity. So th these are. Well, and even the hijab itself. The hijab itself, covering up your women so that other men can, like, you know, this idea of possession and honor, uh, they're, they're all rooted in that. So mm -hmm. uh, even if, um, you know, these honor killings or a lot of these, the ways that these concepts and these ideologies and mindsets don't, the way that they manifest themselves downstream. Uh, it makes them harder to fight and it makes them harder to eradicate from a society uh, because the fundamentals that are driving them at their root right, are still in place and you can't challenge them because it's blasphemy. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah. dang, I think we did a really good job covering all the bases. I hope so. Well, let's <laughs> see. Yeah, I think that there, I mean, there's so much, uh, there's, uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot to talk about uh, when it, when it comes to this topic, right? There, there are many other things, I and mean, there's many other, yeah, there's many other facets to it. But you know, maybe another time. I, I this is not a topic that I think would uh, is going to be exhausted anytime soon. This is actually one of my major drivers to you know one of the reasons I became an atheist. I thought that you know the Quran was just very inconsistent and was obviously a, a man-made book. Uh, so. Yeah, we can we can touch on other aspects of it in other episodes. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I want to keep talking to you forever, but we, you know, <laughs> we uh, have to we have to cut it off somewhere. Right. Um, are there any other plugs we need to make 
towards the end of the episode besides uh, guys if you're listening please like this uh video please subscribe to the channel share it with your friends who maybe have questions about how much this can be directly attributed to religion um and if you're able um consider supporting the show on patreon and you can get all the episodes live or get your question addressed um for as little as one dollar a month so yeah exactly so you know that's if you're listening to this on youtube like and subscribe uh, if you're listening to this on uh, on itunes uh, then please you know give us a rating right that's going to help us like rank higher so wherever you're listening to this about and otherwise share the episode if you liked it yeah yes we're good next time Cool. Well, thank you for joining us, everyone, and uh, see you next week. See you next. Be best. The Secular Jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.